there's no handbook for your child's health, but we do have a podcast featuring world-class clinical and research physicians covering everything from your child's allergies to zinc levels. This is Kids HealthCast by Wild Cornell Medicine. I'm Melanie Cole, and I invite you to listen as we discuss the pediatric diabetes program at Wild Cornell Medicine. Joining me is Emily Coppage. She's a nurse practitioner in pediatric endocrinology at Wild Cornell Medicine. Emily, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today, and this is such an important topic. First, start out by telling us a little bit about what you're seeing in the trends for pediatric diabetes. How common is it? And explain for the listeners a little bit, briefly, of the difference between type 1 and type 2. Yes, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, looking forward to talking all about diabetes. So, Pediatric diabetes, we pretty much have two main types. We have type 1 diabetes, which is autoimmune, where the body has kind of a self-attack and stops producing insulin. Type 2 diabetes, which is similar to what we see in adults, is where they are still producing insulin, but they have insulin resistance. In general, majority of the diabetes in this country and in the world is type 2 diabetes. About 90 to 95% of the people have type 2 diabetes. It's a much lesser population. I think there's about 1.6 million of type 1 diabetes in the country. But in pediatrics, we're more likely to see type 1. Um, type 2 is on the rise as we've seen an increase in obesity in this country. We've definitely started to see more and more type 2 in the pediatric population. But right now, type 1 does kind of prevail. At what age do kids generally present with type 1? And as you said, type 2 is getting more common, but what age do we start to notice some of these things? And while you're answering that, tell parents what symptoms that would alert them that something's not right and that they should really contact their pediatrician to get this checked out. Yeah, so type 1 diabetes, we actually can see across the lifespan. So we can see it from, you know, eight when they're a little kid, age one, all the way up to even to when you're a very elderly person. For most of our diagnoses, they tend to be, you see a more common age when they're like that pubertal time, that early adolescence, I think the average age is like 14. And then we also see a decent cohort in that, you know, four to six year old. But like I said, it could be anywhere. We've diagnosed kids as young as eight, nine months. And we definitely had kids as they were entering adulthood, 18 years old. Type 2 is much more in that adolescent time period. In that pubertal time period, it's more likely when we're going to see someone with type 2. The symptoms, we've always said in the medical world, we call it the three Ps, which stands for, I'm going to use fancy terminology, but polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, which is really just increased urine thirst, increased urination, and increased hunger, those tend to be the hallmark signs of diabetes, seeing someone who's definitely drinking a lot more, having to go to the bathroom a lot more. They tend to be more tired as well. And some of our type 2s will see a little bit more increased infection, especially yeast infections. Emily, is there a screening for kids when they go to their pediatric well visits? Are there questions that they answer? Is there health history questions that are important? Tell us a little bit about if there's any screening that kids go through. So in for general well visits, we actually tend not to screen it, especially for type 1, more of it's symptom-based. You know, if someone was, for some reason, a teenager wasn't getting a period, a teenage girl, or someone wasn't growing or gaining weight, and we see, start to see weight loss, and we start to see, you know, we also say, oh, okay, you know, they're drinking more, they're peeing more, then they, would, they can screen at the pediatrician. They usually get a urine sample, and they can get a blood sugar check. Um, for type 2, it's actually recommended that if they're over 10 years old or entering puberty, we should be screening if they're over 
obese or overweight and have some risk factors, which includes a family history of type 2 diabetes. If they have signs of insulin resistance, we can see it with like thickening along the neck or certain ethnic groups that we should be screening more often. Emily, in your opinion, how do you feel the obesity epidemic plays a role in the uptick of type 2 among our youth? It used to be an adult condition. You, I've been in the field a long time, and this was something that we noticed in adults, obese adults, all of these kinds of things. And why are we seeing this in children? And right now, in the time of COVID, are you noticing it more that this obesity epidemic is getting worse? Yes. I mean, 100%. We know that, you know, as a society, we're all gaining a little bit of weight, let alone during COVID right now and spending more time at home. So we are seeing that this obesity trend that we're seeing across the board is leading to more type 2 diabetes. And with COVID, you know, you kind of had this perfect storm that if you had any of these risk factors, and now we took you and we pretty much said, sit at home, you know, you didn't go outside as much, you're not getting the same activity and the daily exercise. You know, even this remote schooling just really has you at home a lot of times in front of your computers and your TVs, that if you had risk factors, you're more likely actually we're seeing them kind of develop type 2 diabetes. Our group in general has seen a huge increase in people getting diagnosed with type 2 diabetes over this past summer. And I think it's just from that whole stagnant activity, eating more food and gaining more weight. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things that worries medical professionals is the complications that come from diabetes. Tell us a little bit about the complications, why it's so important that we get it under control. And as a child who has type 2 and they become an adult or even type 1, what are some of the things that could happen to them if it's not kept under control? Right. So all the complications, or a lot of them, um, especially if you're looking at the type 1 world, it has to do a lot with those high blood sugars and similar to type 2. And what these high blood sugars, this extra glucose that's sitting in their bloodstreams, what it can cause, you know, and we see a multitude of complications that can happen along the lifespan, including retinopathy, which we can see damage kind of microaneurysms on the retinas. We can see nephropathy, which is kidney disease. We can see neuropathy, which is nerve damage. We can see circulation problems. We can see cardiovascular disease. And then on top of that, we have mental health issues. So all of that can result from A, especially in our type 2 world, being obese and these higher blood sugars. What's really important, I think, with the weight part, especially in your type 2 population, is we know that children who are diagnosed with type 2 tend to have these worse outcomes more likely for some of these complications as life goes on. We know that it's really important to get this stuff under control. And in general, I think the mental health side of it is dealing with these chronic illnesses and complications. It does help that if we're getting this under control, we can kind of alleviate some of that burden. So then tell us about your program at Wild Cornell Medicine. Tell us about the services that you offer, the program highlights and features. I love our program at Wall Cornell, actually, so I'm going to say that. So what I love about our program is that we're all involved. So there, in general, are three main attendings that work, including myself as a nurse practitioner. So there's four providers that work with patients, and we also have a nutritionist, certified diabetes educator who works. We have access to a social worker, and we have access to a psychologist. So we kind of hit a lot of the areas we need to with diabetes, and a lot of our focus has not just been on up-to-date therapies and education, but we've really started working on 
bringing people together and how are we going to do this? We always traditionally had done the diabetes walk with JDRF and our all of our members, even our secretaries, everyone would come out. We'd all walk as a group with our patients. We have a diabetes camp that we run, a day camp in the summer that I think is not just the kids' favorite week. I would say all of us as providers, it's our favorite week to get out of the office and just have some fun. We run a day camp for kids with type 1. We also do a lot of support groups. We do coffee talks for parents, which right now is coffee Zoom talks, but a chance for parents to talk about the stress and burden of diabetes. We started a teen program this past year, although kind of on hold with COVID right now, where you're getting these pre-teen 11, 12, and 13-year-olds together and just having fun experiences, but kind of building some of their leadership skills because, you know, you need to have a lot of resilience when you're dealing with diabetes. And then kind of parallel to our diabetes program, we even have an obesity program that is run by Isabel, who's our nutritionist, and also by another attending. And they work a lot on dealing with kind of that before they get to diabetes time period. So I do think just it's been, I think, really creative about kind of trying to reach our patients in different ways. Well, that segues very nicely. You've mentioned briefly a few times the mental toll that this can take on the family as a whole and not just the child who has diabetes, certainly the parents as well. So tell us a little bit about how you help kids deal with the regimen for type 1. Certainly, it is a very regimented way that they have to live their life. And for type two, there's a whole lot of changes that need to take place. How do you help them with that psychosocial and emotional, you know, changes in their lives, whether it's self-esteem or sporting activities, any of these factors? You know, I think the first thing I always tell parents, it's like when they, we have them in the hospital, they've just been diagnosed and a, Some of our type 2s actually get hospitalized. We've seen them come in pretty sick, and they're learning how to manage diabetes. And I always say, when you take your kid home, it's like taking your newborn home again. It's that feeling of fear, you know, excitement to get out of the hospital, but that fear of, you know, this unknown, how am I going to manage this? And so that beginning is just a lot of stress on everybody, a lot of hand-holding and letting them know that this is nobody's fault and we can do this. And my most important thing to tell kids is they can do this and their life has to pick up. I've had kids who tell me, you know, they get diagnosed and they have a big basketball game two days later. And I'm like, okay, go to it. We're going to make you go to that game and we're going to figure out diabetes. So a lot of the mental health of diabetes is teaching kids to go live their lives, but finding a way to do it safely with diabetes. I think the best outlook to have on diabetes is is kind of a family disease. You know, in type 2, we're working on getting a better handle on that diet. It tends not just to be that one patient. It tends to be there can be changes we all can make. In type 1, we got rid of a specific diet, and we really said eat healthy. But I know if you told me, if I told you I was eating healthy and I went through my diet, I know I could say, oh, I could make some changes. You know, so it's really the whole family learning to eat healthy again. For our type 1s, it's learning to look at their food and count their carbs. And so it really is working with the families, working with our psychologist, who's been really instrumental in speaking to parents and kids to help deal with that burden and to give kids an outlet of when they need to talk to us and say it's really hard. I find that these programs that we do with camps and different support groups are helpful because everybody, I think parents need another parent with diabetes and kids need another kid with diabetes just for that normalcy. They don't have to be best friends, but it's nice to hang out with someone and not think twice about checking a blood sugar or giving insulin. So I think all that kind of factors into just working on their mental health. But the burden is very real. It's lifelong, and it's a lot of work to have these diseases. Well, it certainly is. And what a wonderful program you've got going there. Tell us a little bit more on the multidisciplinary team to treat these 
children because, as you said, there's nutritional services, nutritional counseling, I'm sure exercises involved. There are so many people involved. Tell us about them now. So they're not just meeting with the doctor, they're meeting with myself, the nurse practitioner, and I'm an educator. They meet with our nutritionist to not only learn how to carbohydrate count, you know, our type 1s actually look at the food, determine how many carbs are in them, and then have to determine how much insulin. And then on top of that, they also have to eat healthy. And so we really use a lot from our psychologist. We've been relaying heavily on her to speak with both our patients' new onsets and then as our families kind of go through different times. I mean, technically, there's some outside specialists, and we have to go to an ophthalmologist every year. Some of our kids develop kidney disease young, so we kind of have to refer and work with our nephrology group, which is our kidney doctor group. So we kind of work with all of them to make sure they have the best treatment and that we're kind of staying ahead of the game. Tell us a little bit more about what's unique about the program. You mentioned the camp. Tell us some other special things that your team does because you're working with children and their families. What do you do to go above and beyond? We know you love your job. We can hear that passion. Tell us a little bit more. I think for us is just an understanding of where families are and how can we help them. You know, for a lot of our younger kids, we've had a decent amount of very young kids are actually under twos that have gotten diagnosed in the last year. And that's a very big burden and stressor. So for them, sometimes it's just listening to the mom be stressed out and know that they're coming home and that they need extra help. And the minute they get discharged to let them know that our team's going to call them the first night and that they can get hold of our team anytime. Sometimes we know big life events are happening that they were nervous about, and we just call and check in afterwards to make sure everything went okay. Or we tell them, you know, we come up with plans for something exciting, even if it's just giving a speech at school. We talk about making sure the blood sugars are in a good spot so they don't have to worry about them. A lot of what we do is we partner a lot with JDRF. We have good resources from them. That's the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. So they all get a bag called a bag of hope that they get, and it has Rufus the Bear and other fun things to help the kids learn. And we've really actually loved using telemedicine, (laughs) really have found it worked great that we can reach families differently, do a lot of trainings over the phone, you know, get them on therapies sooner because we can video in and help them. And it's also helpful, you know, your first night home from the hospital, you can video in with your doctor now and go over stuff. And I think that has been really helpful, just kind of that personalized approach. As we wrap up, Emily, tell us about some of the current therapies or anything exciting in the field of endocrinology that you'd like parents to know about as far as what you're doing besides all of the things that we've been talking about. We haven't really mentioned insulin and medication. Give us a little summary on how those things are used because some people think, oh, type 2, right away insulin. That's not always the case. So why don't you give us a little summary on some of the treatments and then wrap it up with your best advice? So for type 2 diabetes, the actual hallmark treatment is metformin. You know, it's the same hallmark treatment that is in adults. And it is an oral medication that we use, and we often get really good control of the blood sugars with it. Often if kids had very high blood sugars, if they have type 2 and they're diagnosed at the beginning, we do need insulin at the beginning to get the blood sugars down. And our goal is always to try to wean off that insulin and just keep them on metformin. It takes a little bit of time to get metformin on board. But insulin doesn't mean where it's at. I also don't like the thought that insulin is bad because insulin's not bad. It's what the body naturally produces. We're just giving it from the outside. 
But those are kind of what we have for type 2. We have that, and then we actually have what's called a GLP-1. So it's an injectable that's not insulin that helps with satiety, and it also helps with blood sugar control. So those are our kind of three main medications. We don't have all the orals that we use in adults. Those have not always been used in pediatrics because they're not approved. And our type 1s, it's all insulin, but there's different ways to get your insulin. So you can use injections, or a lot of the new world of technology is really focused on insulin pumps. And then there's also something called a continuous glucose monitor, which is a sensor that they wear that measures the blood sugar every five minutes. And a lot of the new technology is really looking to get that sensor and that pump to talk and help the pump adjust the insulin based on the sensor readings, which means ideally better control and it means a little bit less work that you as the person with diabetes have to do. You know, if you read a lot of stuff that's coming out, I'll talk about this artificial pancreas. We don't have an artificial pancreas. That would be a pump and a sensor that just do it all for you. But we do have hybrid models that are getting better and better to ease the workload of diabetes. Diabetes is increasing both type 1 and type 2. And so we know it's out there. We know it's in the community. Our program has worked really hard to not just work with you and to better your control with diabetes, but also to kind of better your emotional support with diabetes as well. And that has been, I think, one of our strongest points of the program and finding ways for not just kids, but for parents to kind of reach each other and go through this experience together with a little bit of help. Great information, Emily. I can just hear how much you care for your patients. And thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about the program at Wild Cornell Medicine. And Wild Cornell Medicine continues to see our patients in person as well as through video visits. And you can be confident of the safety of your appointments at Wild Cornell Medicine. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us and to our listeners. And that concludes today's episode of Kids HealthCast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and all the other Wild Cornell Medicine podcasts. For more health tips and updates, follow us on your social channels. I'm Melanie Cole. Rehabilitation medicine can help patients with a wide array of disorders and diseases, including cancer. If cancer care is of interest, listen to CancerCast. While Cornell Medicine's dedicated oncology podcast featuring leaders in the field and patient stories, CancerCast highlights dynamic discussions about the exciting developments in oncology. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.